Uh, hello, uh, my name is AJ Lewis, and I'll be having a conversation with Susan Stryker uh, for the New York City Trends Oral History Project um, in collaboration with uh, the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Program. Uh, this is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans identifying people. Uh, it is October 22nd, uh, 2019, uh, and this is being recorded in, on uh, Central Park West on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Uh, hi, Susan. How are you? Doing fine. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thank good. you so much for your time today. I'm glad we get to chat. Um, well, as a trans historian, I'm really happy to support a trans oral history project. So. I realize I've never actually interviewed someone who is a trained historian before, so you may have the capacity to judge my interviewing skills. All right. <laughs> I haven't encountered I will hold before. you fully accountable. Um, All right. Uh, can we start with you just um, uh, briefly introducing yourself for the recorder, tell whatever you want listeners to, to hear about you in a snippet, um, and then we can kind of dive in talking about early life and move on from there. Um, okay. Um, I mean, I am a trans person. I, you know, I'm 58 years old this year. Um, my coming up years, the words that we used about ourselves was transsexual or later transgender and you know, now I would, you know, call myself either of those two words or a trans-feminine person. You know, it doesn't, I don't get too hung up on the lingo. Um, I wasn't a person who was assigned male at birth and no longer live that way. Um, I am an academic. That's my job right now. Um, I'm here in New York because I have a visiting professorship this year at, at Yale University. Um, and we're living here um, uh, in Manhattan, uh, where my, my partner is from originally, so we're just sort of enjoying the opportunity to be on the East Coast for a while and see family members from here and just, you know, enjoy being in the city because it's a, a place that we both love. Um, my day job, I'm a, a professor of gender and women's studies at the University of Arizona. That's my regular employment. Uh, over the past number of years at Arizona, I've, um, I've had the opportunity to, you know, help build up a program in transgender studies there, uh, as well as uh, launch an academic journal, TSQ, the Transgender Studies Quarterly, and that kind of um, institution building or program building work within the academy is something that comes for me out of um, a long history of political and cultural activism on trans issues. I transitioned uh, publicly in the early 90s, you know, like 91, 92. Uh, and, you know, part, part, so it's like it, uh, doing cultural and political activism on trans issues is definitely something that feels like I have my own deep embodied stake in, but also having this recognition that uh, things that were difficult for me, like, um, you know, like finding employment, I was, you know, really seriously underemployed for many, many years. Um, things that were, um, you know, challenges in my life, I recognized were challenges in other trans people's lives too. And so, you know, I, it just felt both very self-interested and very altruistic at another level to just do work to like help make more space for trans academic and cultural production. You know, it was something that served me 
and would also serve others. I, you know, I very much had this um, uh, sort of the mentality of like we have to pull ourselves up by each other's bootstraps. You know that um, that you know collectively trans people could um, you know start to take up more space in culture. You know, like find more ways to to live. Um, you know, rewarding lives and. Um, uh, you know, so I was just, I, I was very committed to investing my own energies to this, you know, project of m making trans lives more livable by changing what we knew about, you know, trans history to, you know, make cultural work that, you know, moved people and changed people's attitudes about trans folks and, you know, sometimes being more involved in, you know, direct action politics or policy-oriented work. And, you know, to me, it just feels very organic that um, I was able to use my academic training as a historian uh, to, um, you know, try to move the needle on, on trans issues. Uh, and I, I intend to ask you a lot more about that. Um, but um, if we could, uh, I'd like to sort of walk us up to how you kind of arrived there. Um, so you've spent uh, like a good chunk, if not most, of your adult life in San Francisco, right? Yeah, I moved to San Francisco, well, to the San Francisco Bay Area in 1983, which mm -hmm. is when I started the PhD program in U.S. history at UC Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as they say, it's, you know, kind of hard to go back down on the farm once you've seen Gay Perry, mm -hmm. right? So it's like I just, um, I really took to the Bay Area. I liked being there. And when I was finishing my degree, um, I was also in the process of transitioning and there was just, you know, I had a snowball's chance in hell of, you know, getting an academic job as an out, you know, queer trans person in the early 90s mm -hmm. and I just decided that I would use my, um, my training, you know, not, you know, to pursue an academic career but to do more community-based mm -hmm. work. And I just, you know, sort of threw myself into learning the local history of you know, tr trans communities in the San Francisco Bay Area. And you know, and that was a big part of my working life for, you know, for over a decade. Um, and then, you know, San Francisco is still where I make my home. Um, you know, my partner and I, we have a house there. We're never gonna, you know, leave, leave that because, you know, San Francisco real estate market is just so crazy. We'd never be able to get back in. And, you know, a lot of our family is in the Bay Area at this point, you know, kids and siblings and, you know, parents' generation is gone now, but, you know, we've just got deep roots in the Bay Area. So e even though over the last decade or so, it's like I've worked in other places, you know, I've, I've had um, visiting professorships in, you know, Vancouver and at Harvard and um, I had a permanent tenure-track job in Indiana for a while. I've been in Tucson for eight years now. Uh, even though I've worked in other places, I've always kept one foot on the ground in San Francisco and, you know, had a very unsustainable carbon footprint flying back and forth, um, you know, to um, both, like, work in my field and, you know, maintain my domestic and family life in San Francisco. Uh, and may I ask um, about the farm before you discovered Gay Perry? Uh, you're from uh, Oklahoma, is that right? 
Yeah, more or less. Um, I'm from Oklahoma. Um, my bio family is all from northeastern Arkansas. Mm -hmm. All of all of my kinfolk, you know, are from from Arkansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Mississippi, Tennessee, Missouri. You know that kind of mid mid south area, um, and so. You know that's but you know that's where the cousins and grandparents and aunts and uncles were for the most part. But my dad had um, joined the military, uh, you know, coming out of out of high school back in the late 1950s, and so I actually grew up all over the place. I spent about half my growing up years in Oklahoma because mm -hmm. uh, we were stationed at Fort Sill, which is the field artillery training center. My dad taught there. Uh, but, you know, I also lived in Germany, I lived in Hawaii, um, sometimes when he was overseas, like he was a Vietnam combat veteran, and when he was in Vietnam and when he was in Korea, uh, we lived with family in Arkansas. So, so, yeah, more than anywhere else, I would say I'm from Oklahoma, because that's where I spent the bulk of my growing up years, but I also feel like I... I was not deeply rooted there. And I'm sorry, he's, he was in the army. Army, yeah, field artillery. Mm -hmm. um, what was it like moving around? Well, you know, it was just my normal. You know, I didn't know life could be otherwise. I think I moved seven times before I was ten years old, and um, you know, that's just what what life was like. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, when I was ten, we kind of stayed put in Oklahoma for a while. And my dad died relatively young. He was in his mid-30s. And um, he died when I was 13. And we just stayed in Oklahoma, which is where we were living when he died. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, by the time I was in high school, you know, I definitely had this sense of, hmm, you know, I'm here. I don't mind being from here. There are, you know, things that I like about here. But I never thought of it as, like, the whole world or where I wanted to be like I I'd, I'd, I'd seen an ocean before you know and um, uh, I just always thought I would I would leave mm -hmm. so um, I did wind up going to the University of Oklahoma as an undergrad because I got really good fellowship opportunities to stay in state and this uh, would have been around um, set, graduated us. from high school in 1979 mm -hmm and uh, graduated from college in 83 and went straight into a PhD program mm -hmm. in Berkeley, which is where I really wanted to go, you know. I, um, um, I had remembered, well, the way that I thought about it when I was a teenager was, I want to live someplace that other people go to on vacation, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But I didn't quite know where that would be. Uh, but. Uh, maybe here's an origin story for you. I, I was on the debate team in high school and I, you know, was reading the, you know, weekly news magazines every week to stay up on current events and I remembered uh, reading about the assassination of Harvey Milk. Hmm. And, um, and I just thought, oh, San Francisco, if they could elect an out gay man uh, to the Board of Supervisors, that must mean there's a lot of gay people in San Francisco. And if there's a lot of gay people in San Francisco, then maybe there's a lot of people who are trans like me. Um, and, I thought, and it's beautiful. And then it's like, oh, 
And then Berkeley, it's like, you know, I was thinking of, you know, Berkeley in the 60s. I thought of Berkeley as a radical place that had a great university. And it's like by the time I was in my late teens, it was like, maybe I will move to the Bay Area. And so that seed was planted pretty early for me. I have a similar set of thought processes that brought me to New York City when I was in Acadia. So you... um, and did uh, who uh, uh, did you grow up with siblings? Yeah, I have a brother. Uh, and who raised you all after your father passed? Away? Um, my mother. Yeah, she. Um, um, so you know, I, I grew up until thirteen in a you know very sort of conventional you know man woman couple married family mm-hmm. with you know two kids and uh, and then when my dad died when I was thirteen, um, you know my mom just had a high school education. Um, she'd never gone to college. And she, you know, she had worked, you know, like pretty low-level secretarial, administrative assistant kinds of jobs. Um, uh, she'd also worked at a newspaper as a proofreader. Very good typist, very good proofreader. Um, um, and she decided, I guess when I was like maybe. 15, like she worked for a couple of years after my dad died, kind of, you know, because it was pretty sudden and very traumatic, you know, in the family. And and when she started bouncing back from that, you know, she just decided, all right, well, I'm going to get myself a college education. She quit her job. We lived on, um, uh, you know, veterans benefits, survivors benefits, social security benefits. And mom just went to school full time and became a social worker. Mm. And um, she actually then had most, she worked for a while in community mental health, but most of her career was working for the Department of Defense. She was a social worker who did uh, substance abuse uh, and drug testing uh, for the Army. Um, Mm. So she ran all of the. So she, she ran through a big program on drug testing and drug counseling at the, at Fort Sill. That was the bulk of her career. Um, so yeah, I grew up on the government dole for the most part. Um, and you had, so you, uh, I, I take it you had like awareness of like trans as a thing when you were living in Oklahoma. Like I, I did have awareness of trans as a thing. Um, and, you know, and I, I am one of those people who, you know, from earliest memories, I felt gender different, you know. Um, um, you know, and I, I said I, I'm agnostic about how that comes about. I mean, I can tell stories of etiology or tell bio, autobiographical stories about why I think I'm trans, because, you know, most people aren't, and those of us who are, why? You know, it's an interesting question. Um, But um, not that I think we have to have a good answer, you know, in order to be able to be validated as a trans person in the present. But, you know, there's curiosity. It's like, huh, you know, why am I as I am? Um, But as a small child, just like, I just distinctly remember you know, understanding that I was being positioned by others as boy, but that my own trajectory was towards girl. That was sort of my orientation. Mm-hmm. We don't really talk much about a gender orientation, but just my assumption, like my gender target. You know, it's just like, 
the future is female. It's just like, and that was completely un, unquestioned in me early on. And then by the time I was around five, I think that's sort of where the, the crisis happened, where I, um, that's when I realized that bodies were different and that bodily difference is what tracked you into these different social genders. And it was like, you know, uh-oh, you know, like how, you know, what, what is to be done? Um, and so I, I definitely, from around age five, had my eyes and ears open to like looking for information that would kind of help solve this personal, you know, existential conundrum about the difference that I felt between my own internal sense of gendered identity and what the world was putting on me. Did you find information? Um, you know, I mean, because we live in, you know, a mass culture society, it's like a lot of the early stuff that I would catch these glimmers of would be in, in uh, mass media. Um, you know, like I, I remember a very um, fond attachment to Bugs Bunny in the, you know, the Warner Brothers cartoons because Bugs Bunny was often, you know, often wore girl clothes, you know, and was completely unapologetic about it. You know, like it wasn't like the sort of shticky, you know, guy in a dress, yuck, yuck kind of humor. It wasn't humiliating. It was, you know, it's just like there was something very empowered about Bugs Bunny's gender transgression, and I really liked that. Um, uh, I, well, I can say that I was mm, 11 or 12, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there. I remember it was after we'd moved back to Oklahoma and before my father died, so somewhere around like 71, 72 two in there I was reading the newspaper um, as a precocious little kid I read the newspaper every day and um, in the Dear Abby advice column there was this letter that was you know sort of along the lines of you know Dear Abby I have discovered that my husband is wearing my clothes you know is he a homosexual it's like you know dear concerned wife um, you know, a homosexual is someone who loves a member of their own sex. Your husband is either a transvestite or a transsexual. A transvestite is someone who enjoys wearing the clothing of the opposite sex. And a transsexual is someone who thinks that they are a member of the opposite sex. You know, I suggest counseling, you know, for your marriage. And I, I was going like, transsexual, it's a word, there's a thing, there's other people. You know, and I went, you know, I went to the library to start looking up transsexual. Um, and um, yeah, in the card catalog, that old thing that doesn't exist anymore, um, analog Google. Um, and I was a little disappointed because the only information that I could find at the you know, Carnegie Public Library of Comanche County, Oklahoma, um, only information on transsexuality was um, from textbooks of abnormal psychology. And you know, it's just like I was a kid. It's like I couldn't really understand a lot of it. But it's like I, you know, found these like college level textbooks and was trying to read about transsexuals. And my takeaway point from all of that was transsexuals are crazy. And, and so 
I was very disappointed because I thought, oh, I thought I might be transsexual, but those people are mentally ill and I'm fine. I just have this feeling of myself being differently gendered. So I guess I'm this other kind of thing that I don't even have a word for yet. You know? mm-hmm. So there was this um, attraction to, but disidentification with the idea of transsexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it took me another few years. I mean, it took me until the summer that I turned 18 to, to basically go, you know, Maybe, maybe I'm a certain kind of transsexual who's not a crazy person, and that I can do something that you know finds a way to work with this mm-hmm. category or, or term. Um, but you know, it's like, yeah, there there was information, you know, little dribbles of information about transness that I was able to find. I remember seeing an ad in the same newspaper for a, a screening of the film I Want What I Want. Uh, I don't know if you know this film. It was based on a novel by Jeffrey Brown, I think was the author's name. It was a British novel. I've, you know, I've since read it, but it was made into a trashy tabloid, you know, B-movie mm-hmm. kind of thing. I want what I want, dot, 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 to be a um, and you see, like, there was this illustration of, um, you know, a man standing naked from the waist up, you know, in front of a full-length mirror. And uh, he's looking into the mirror, and the reflection back is a woman naked from the waist up. And I guess she's wearing a bra. Um, um, but just that, that mirror scene of, like, yes, that is the answer. You know, like that, that is the fantasy in some sense, you know, it's just like that you want to see a reflection back of how you think of yourself. And I, you know, I guess I was, you know, like 11 or 12 at this time. It was a, I guess they had the movie, moving picture ratings, you know, out by that time, you know, like, the, you know, R ratings and X ratings. I can't remember when that system got started, but anyway, it was an adult film and I am, um, I rode my bike downtown and snuck into the film and watched it. I was, again, very disappointed because I thought, well, this is actually just kind of boring. You know, I just, I didn't, I, you know, I thought it was going to be a revelation. And she's like, this is actually just a pretty crappy movie where this person's suffering and whining and moaning. And then like, okay, at the end they get what they want and they see themselves in the mirror. Not much of a payoff, you know, for me sitting here for this long. Um, by the time I was in high school, Rene Richards was um, all over the place. So like late 70s by then? Yeah, like 76, 77, somewhere in there. And so, you know, I paid a lot of attention to the Rene Richards story. And it was in newspaper coverage about Rene Richards that it was like, you know, most famous transsexual since Christine Jorgensen in the 1950s. So like by the later 70s, I was going, this trans thing has got a history. It's like, it could be recovered. I could learn about this. Um, so anyway, so like, yeah, by the time I was in high school, um, I definitely had a sense that trans was a thing. Uh, Started college in 79, and it was in 1979 that I read um, 
I guess there were a few things. Um, I thought, oh, yay, now I'm at university, and there will be a great library, and I can go find out, you know, all kinds of cool stuff about this thing that I think I could maybe be. Um, there were two books on transsexualism at the University of Oklahoma Library in 1979. One of them was Janice Raymond's, um, yes, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, The Transsexual Empire, which was pretty, it was new at that time. I think it was like, that 79, was yeah. 78, 79. Um, so somebody was right there on it and got that book. Um, and then the other one was Robert Stoller's, um, you know, book. Um, Perversion, the erotic form of hatred. Uh, anyway, it's like, and that one, uh, you know, which is very pathologizing of trans people. Um, I was disappointed when I read that book because every time that Stoller was describing something or excerpting something from somebody's case history where they were like talking about their feelings of being trans, Someone had gone through the book and razored out all of those autobiographical statements. So it was just like that book was just like Swiss cheese. Um, well, was it somebody who was like fetishizing trans or was it somebody who was censoring trans? I, was like, I don't know. But yeah, that was, that was my first university library encounter was trying to find more information about, about being Trans. But then, in my um, um, in a history class that I was taking, we read um, Betty Friedan's *The Feminine Mystique*, and through that, I learned about Simone de Beauvoir and the one is not born but rather becomes a woman. And and so by the time I'm about eighteen, I'm thinking it's like, oh, you know, people fetishize you know, or censor trans people. Some feminists think trans people are the worst things in the world, but other feminists think of gender as a process that you, you, um, you know, engage in over the course of your life, that you become something that we're all in the process of becoming. So anyway, I was just, um, you know, like the old Bob Seger song says, you know, I was working on mysteries without any clothes. That sounds like a pretty nuanced take for an 18-year-old working with very limited source material. <laughs> but it's just, but it's just like, it was, it was out of that hunger, you know, like mm -hmm. you're looking for something. And these were the things that, you know, kind of were put in front of me on my path. Were you aware of like gay and trans activism going on nationally around that time? No, not really. I mean, I did, um, I mean, certainly not any trans activism because I was active in student government in college it's like I knew people who were involved in the I think I think it was gay activist alliance I mean I forget exactly what they called it but um, I knew some political gays through student government and um, you know but they're big you know the the big focus of you know their activism was national coming out day and um, uh, that was that was basically it. You know, people would a national coming out day say like, "I'm gay," and you know, it was before the AIDS crisis. And um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that Norman, Oklahoma, was a particularly politicized campus environment. Um, um, oh, they would also do this thing called National Blue Jeans Day, 
where they would do this thing where they say like, if you support gay rights, wear blue jeans today. Right. It's just kind of a yeah. joke, but it's like you, you, then you'd watch all the frat boys, you know, like wearing their three-piece suits that day. You know, it's like we're not gay. We're not. So, um, yeah, that was my first exposure to gay activism. Um, it was like your sort of like inner life around gender, something that you like were like sharing with other people in your life at the time, or was I was not sharing it with other people in my life at the time. Um, although, I mean, it's kind of like where. I feel like I had a kind of a, I don't want to say coming out to myself, but but that my sense of transness was like very inward, you know, as a child and as a teenager. And that, you know, like I said, I had sort of struggled with like trying to find terminology for myself or like thinking that, you know, there were well, I know there's going to be other people like me somehow. There's Renee Richards. There's this Christine Jorgensen person that's mentioned in the in the press. But you know, what am I gonna do about this? Am I gonna, you know, to use today's language, transition? You know, am I, am I gonna like change my sex? And that's like I I I, I don't know yet. Um, but yeah this is and then so this is kind of like a life course issue it's like you know it's like i had dated it's like i had you know i've always been attracted to women i was always attracted to women from a standpoint of feminine identification you know i was i was always it was always a, a lesbian attraction for me um and you know it's like but it's like it's complicated to date <laughs> <laughs> you know, when it's like you're attracted to somebody in one way and they're attracted to you in another and you're not out to them and, you know, it's like I would get frustrated in my relationships because it, it was not, um, you know, I didn't feel seen in them and I didn't know how to be out in them. And the summer of 1980, I uh, scraped together every penny that I could find and went backpacking in Europe for the summer. Um, and it was the first time in my life that I was completely alone, you know, like alone in the sense of I wasn't around family, I was completely out of my context, um, you know, it's just like, and it was really the first time I think I had the space to just think, well, who am I to myself instead of who am I to other people? And, um, yeah, I, I, it was a, a really significant, you know, coming of age kind of trip for me to be able to do that and you know I have this very sort of romantic memory of, of um, you know I'd gone to the Lake District because I wanted to hike up in the fells in, in England because I, you know, I was like oh like well, I'm gonna walk the paths that Wordsworth and Longfellow you know have, have walked and and you know like wanted to think about romantic poetry and um, it was up there in the in the lake district you know walking along the the fells that um i don't know i just there was this like moment where like it, it was all like gray and foggy and like the fog lifted and the sun broke through and there was something like in me it was going like you know just like i don't know what a creature like me is but i know that if I want to find happiness with other people, I have to be open with them about you know, like who I am and maybe I'll transition or maybe I won't. I just don't know, but it's like I need to find somebody to be like with me in this 
process and I just have to be like open to the future, like holding the possibility of me transitioning and what should I do in the meantime? You know, it's just like I need to like be out to whoever I'm dating about my sense of gender difference. The way I thought of it at the time was like I should probably find bisexual women to date, you know, because it's like I want somebody who like knows how to like who feels erotically attracted to women. Uh, but is not put off by male anatomy, and um, you know I'm just gonna I'm just gonna hold myself open to that. And I came back from that trip and started my sophomore year in college, and I met this woman in my fencing class, um, who wanted to fence with me, practice with me because I'm left-handed, and it's like it's more common for people to be right-handed, and so left-handers have an advantage. And fencing because most people are not, you know, um, you know, you're making your attack from a different side, basically. And she just wanted to practice against me as a left-handed person. And I got to know her, fencing with her. And I thought, you know, I kind of think she's a dyke, but I kind of think she's into me. And um, we wound up dating. And I should have known. We were both into film. We both... Um, she, she was a grad student, she was older than me. I was a sophomore, she was like second year in an MA program um, in German. And you know, I spoke German because we lived in Germany when I was a kid and I was you know, taking German for my foreign language in college. And so we went, uh, so we had the German thing in common, um, but we also were very interested in film. And our first date was to go see a triple feature um, in October of 1980, um, it was like Nosferatu, um, so I, there were two other German films, like Caligari and one other, I think, but you know, these are you know, German expressionist films for Halloween, and, and you know, we were talking about, you know, film and horror and schlock and science fiction and I said oh have you ever seen Rocky Horror Picture Show and she said uh, no I, I haven't I said oh well we should go and so like the next weekend we went to see Rocky Horror Picture Show together and she just kept telling me that she thought Frankenfurter was so damn hot and I thought ah, this is getting more and more interesting and and then we um, yeah we wound up um, we wound up being together for 11 years and, and I was, you know, out to her really early in the relationship. Um, you know, there was a, um, the relationship had a, um, yeah, like a, you know, BDSM and fantasy and role-playing dimension to it. Um, you know, she, she came out to me about, you know, being interested in, you know, bondage fantasies and whatnot and I came out to her about being trans identified and you know there was this this moment where um, you know she said my deepest fear about you know wanting to be like you know tied up or spanked by you know somebody was the fear of of asking for that from a man and I was like, we're golden, you know, like this is not, it's not, my, you know, it's like that's not where I would be tying you up and spanking you from. 
and so we were just we were just out to each other very very early um, and you know I, I, I thought for a long time that that was that was enough it's like oh you know it's like I found somebody who like gets me and I didn't necessarily feel like I needed to deal with the whole social um, stigma you know of being visibly and publicly trans because it's like I felt recognized in my primary relationship but as time went on um, you know it took me it's like once I kind of like assimilated that absorbed that it's like it wasn't enough you know it's like it's not just who am I to my partner it's like who am I in the world and then we started having you know tensions in the relationship where you know, the, the way I've always understood it is that, you know, she had come from this very homophobic, dysfunctional family where she didn't feel out about, didn't feel good about being out, you know, about being queer. Um, and that she found something in me that felt queer to her and yet played straight to the world. I was her closet. And um, she was just deathly afraid of giving that up. And... Um, you know, so we, you know, we had a child together. Um, I was born in 1983 when I was starting graduate school. Uh, and, you know, the stakes were pretty high for keeping the relationship together. And um, I tried, you know, for a long time to like to find a way to work within the constraints of the relationship. Like it was okay as long as it was private, but not okay be public, you know, in terms of, you know, my expressing a sense of being trans. Um, and so what had happened over the years was, um, um, you know, I, I, I really kind of lived a double life, you know, by, by day, you know, star graduate student in a high-powered, high-profiled, you know, PhD program. And my partner was in a PhD program in English. Um, you know, and, you know, we, you know, we were the model, you know, feminist family, you know, like splitting all of our responsibilities right down the middle and, and childcare and cooking and, you know, everything. It's like we were, you know, we were like the, yeah, po poster children for, a, you know, how does heterosexuality, how can heterosexuality work, you know? Um, but I, then on the other hand, it's like I was spending a lot of time in the dungeons and drag bars of San Francisco. So there was like a geographical cure in a sense, you know, it's like in the East Bay at Berkeley, it's like publicly, you know, who, who I was before I transitioned. But meanwhile, starting to, you know, nose my way around the, you know, sexual underground, the demimonde of San Francisco uh, in the, you know, the later, later 80s. What were the uh, Dungeons and Drag bars like? Fun. Um, you know, it was... Um, I mean, I felt like I didn't really have a good place to fit in. I mean, like, looked male-bodied in the world, was not gay, you know, was leery of a lot of lesbian and feminist spaces because of Janice Raymond. Um, uh, was not um, particularly enamored of 
the trans spaces that I could find, which were very, you know, I mean, hats off to those people, you know, but um, they were surviving, you know, but... Um, what kind of, it, if I may ask, what kinds of like, trans spaces were they? I mean, it was, very, it was very sad support group kinds of spaces. Everyone seemed really depressed. Um, you know, their lives seemed very constrained, and I was like, I thought, I, I don't, I, I, can I give up everything else in my life to like be, express myself the way that I want if it costs me everything? Like, you know, I don't know. Um, you know, I knew of, um, you know, s s street working, you know, sex street work cultures, but, you know, again, felt like, well, I could do that if I have to, but, you know, I wanted more, you know, so there just wasn't any real good place to plug in. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I did find, you know, a leather community. Um, and that, the, you know, I, I think in retrospect, some of it was very particular to San Francisco, you know, that there had been a long history of um, you know, bi-gendered, you know, leather community play spaces. You know, people like Cynthia Slater who had like started, you know, networking with, um, you know, gay male um, leather clubs. And, you know, there was a lesbian feminist SM, you know, there was, you know, there was, you know, Patrick Califia and Gail Rubin and, um, you know, like there was a, a a politically conscious, you know, countercultural, gender diverse leather community in San Francisco that I, you know, had found my way into by the later 1980s. Did you uh, know them back then, like uh, Patrick Lafayette and then I did, yeah. Um, um, yeah. Um, Pat and I never really got along. Um, um, but Gail became a good friend. And um, um, yeah, I mean, I, I was, um, I think I met Gail in 89. There was, a might have been 88, uh, something that we could, could be looked up, but there was a, somebody running against Jesse Helms. Um, I think it was Harvey Gant, I think was his name. Um, and um, Gail had organized a fundraiser at the Eagle in San Francisco. It was called the Beat Jesse Helms Flogathon, and um, and I thought, well, I got to go to this, you know. And so I was there, and you know, it was mostly to like, you know, give some money, you know, to this political campaign. Um, um, but I thought the DJ was really interesting, like playing this really interesting sort of industrial music and. I thought, you know, he's kind of a, you know, butch bottom looking person, and I thought, oh, I'm go chat this person up, and we're talking, and it's like, and it was Gail, and um, she was DJing. yeah, Gail, Gail DJs, um, <laughs> yeah, and um, and it was like, you're Gail Rubin, and you know, and we we, um, you know, we hit it off. It was actually through Gail, you know, I was saying like, oh, you know, I wanted to, you know, get more involved in doing that community-based history, you know, the leather community on trans history, and she's like, oh, do you know about the Gay and Lesbian Historical Society? And, 
um, I said, oh, yeah, I do, actually, because I have a friend from grad school who's one of the founders of it. It's like, but you're right. I should, you know, try to, you know, plug in there. But, yeah, no, from the late 80s on, I mean, Gail was just like a, you know, partner in crime for me. You know, not like we were, like, best buds and hung out all the time, but, like, we were in a reading group together, and, you know, we, as two two perverts without portfolio, you know, in the San Francisco Bay Area who were like was interested in history and culture and politics. It's just like, you know, we, we crossed paths multiple times and uh, she was quite influential, you know, for me and, and helping me, you know, kind of bridge the gaps between, or bridge the gap, yeah, bridge the gaps between, um, um, you know, sort of a subcultural scene and a sort of an intellectual life. Um, and may I ask, um, like, what were some of the like bars and dungeons that you uh, frequented at the time? Uh, well, the main. So I I tried to plug into the Outcasts, you know, at first, which is a lesbian SM group. And you know their rule was we don't have any rules about who's a woman, but you have to like other than it's like you need to like live socially as a woman. And so when I was first getting connected, it's just like I wasn't doing that yet. But it wasn't it wasn't like a hostile rejection. It's like I knew people there. Like there were they would do public programs sometimes that were like open to anyone, and I would go to those. And through my connections in um, the outcasts, I got plugged into this other group of, um, I think of it as like a proto-queer um, scene. I mean, it's before the word queer had really sort of, you know, taken off around 1990, 91. But um, we're called the Lynx Parties, L-I-N-K-S. Um, and it was like a, you know, Pan gender, you know, really free form. I think it was like experimental jazz BDSM. You know, it was just it was really fun, um, um, and that yeah, you know, that was quite formative for me. I've actually written some about this. There's an article that I wrote, published in Parallax, called Dungeon Intimacies, um, and um, I describe some of what that scene meant to me at the time but it was a really important space for me to um, you know have a social environment where I felt like I could kind of like take myself apart and put myself together again and kind of develop um, a sociality around my transness and not have it just sort of be largely in my my head and to, you know, to be in a room with a lot of, you know, a lot of other smart perverts was, you know, really fun um, and very and formative, quite formative for me. Um, you know, I've, I've written about that sense of like, it's where I feel like I first really had an embodied sense of myself that I wanted to extend, not just like out of my head or out of my primary relationship, or out of a subcultural scene, but kind of like into the world. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it was just a, yeah, queer, pervy, leather kink was a great grounding for, you know, everything else that I ever did. 
Do you have a sense of like what the like uh, class and race composition of those scenes was like at the time? Um, it was largely white. Um, um, class was like all over the map. You know, I mean, from like poor people, you know, virtually like homeless and living on the streets to like people who were quite wealthy. I mean, it was it was very pan class. Um, so white majority, some Asian, some Latinx, some African-American, but you know, I don't think I knew any indigenous people in that scene. Um, but um, yeah, most everybody that I knew was like really politically left and countercultural and, you know, critical and engaged. And it was, a, you know, very, um, um, yeah, I mean, people were just very thoughtful and engaged in that scene. Um, um, so political, you know. Uh, what what kinds of political issues were you and others in the scene like sort of engaged around? Um, we can get to that in a minute. But I was just saying, like, what kinds of bars did you hang out at? I'm trying to remember other places. There was. Um, um, you know, it's long enough ago that I'm not remembering exactly when some of these things were just like, I used to go to a place called the Motherlode, um, um, and I, I know early 90s, but I'm not sure late 80s. There was a place called the Black Rose that was mostly a uh, sex work bar. A lot of trans women worked out of the Black Rose. Remember um, where they were, roundabouts? What's that? Where, where they were, those two bars? Uh, Tenderloin. Um, you know, divey mission bars, El Rio, you know, um, um, Amelia's, um, which more, more of a lesbian bar. Um, that didn't have a strict, you know, separatist door policy. Um, you know, not too much time in the cast. I mean, it was it, Mission and Tenderloin were, you know, kind of my scenes. Um, um, yeah. Well, then, like through through the leather scene. Like there was another organization called the Society of Janus, which was you know, more like het and swinger oriented. Um, but they would organize these you know, parties you know, where it's like you would like go and check out all of these different dungeon spaces. Um, and so like I've been in a lot of dungeon spaces that were like more like the gay male scene, like the 15 Association and um, yeah, there's just dungeons spread all over San Francisco, and I, you know, sort of go through them. Um, uh, I worked for a while um, um, right at the end of graduate school, and you know, before I became really unemployed, it's like I worked for a while as a pro dom, um, partly because I wanted to like see, like, well, if I transition and I lose everything. How do I feel about doing sex work? You know, it's kind of like I feel fine about doing sex work. Um, um, there was this great dungeon on um, Valencia Street at um, 
eighteenth, seventeenth. I'm gonna forget exactly, but um, you know, part of the Valencia that Michelle T wrote about in Valencia, not what Valencia Street has become in recent years. But yeah, I worked out of that dungeon with um, um, you know somebody who you know I had known socially through the the leather scene, who you know was sort of old old school, well regarded kind of legendary you know madam of a house. Um, um, so yeah, I mean those those were it's some some time spent like on the lower height, which is more. Um, was not a particularly queer scene, but was, you know, countercultural in a way that was okay to kind of be visibly trans in. Um, I knew people who worked, you know, as strippers and, you know, pole dancers, and so, like, you know, sometime in sex clubs in North Beach. And so, you know, I mean, I just feel like I, I got a pretty good introduction to, you know, down low San Francisco. Um, in the later 80s and early 90s. Um, politics. Um, you know, sort of in my, my um, in my life in Berkeley, you know, I was connected to uh, anti-apartheid politics, you know, so that there was a a big move at that time to divest from, um, you know, to divest UC's portfolio from South African interests. And we were, um, you know, so I, mean, I was pretty active in that. Um, you know, a lot of, uh, well, I mean, there were street protests and occupations of buildings and um, my partner at the time was very concerned that I not get arrested um, and so you know I didn't do things that I thought would directly result in my arrest but I you know did a lot of work with um, support for people who had been jailed you know like going to Santa Rita jail to you know pick people up and you know after they'd been bailed out and um, I was involved in um, uh, labor union politics. I was the shop steward for the history department for the Association of Graduate Student Employees, UAW District 65, and, you know, did work to, you know, get the, to get union representation for graduate student employees. And actually, my, my, uh, later, my filmmaking partner, Victor Silverman, um, he was an old friend of mine from grad school, and we, you know, we did anti-apartheid politics together, and we were, he was the other um, uh, uh, shop steward for AGSE, um, and that, where was I going to go with that? Um, oh, so he and I, and um, we, we co-led um, a wildcat strike in the history department um, against the, the university because they were going to reclassify all of the uh, grad students at a lower ranking where you wouldn't get paid as much and and uh, you know we didn't think that that was fair because you would have people who had been sort of like grandfathered in to the top of the pay scale who under this like new regime that they were trying to put in place would like get bumped down to like the second of four job classifications we said no no it's like 
if you're already at the top level, like you got to be grandfathered in at the you know top level of the new pay scale. The university was saying, nope. And we organized the history department to do a grade withholding strike and said, like, we're just not going to turn in our grades, and you can't like close out your books on the semester until we until our demands are met. Um, and it was it, it was it was fun um, to. Um, you know, kind of take on, you know, institutionalized power and uh, figure out a way to, like, actually, like, make a change to get something that you thought was right. You know, we, we had um, um, the, one of the departmental secretaries in the history department was very active in, um, um, you know, like, she was on, like, the, the AFL-CIO council for Alameda County, and she was maybe like chapter president of the AFSME union. And so, you know, she was just, you know, feeding us all kinds of, you know, information, you know, from the you know, organized labor movement, you know, to, you know, talk with us about strategies and tactics and, you know, what we could reasonably, you know, expect and, you know, where our pressure points were. So, yeah, that was, that was a, a fun, fun learning curve for me. What was the outcome? We won. Yeah, um, and this would have been uh, about your, mm-hmm. you know, later '80s sometime. Um, uh, you know, by the earlier '90s, I was. Um, oh, I was gonna say the other thing. You know, going on in Berkeley was you know support work around the, um, um, the wars in Central America, you know, that, that uh, there was a lot of campus activism to, you know, to do solidarity work with, you know, people in El Salvador and Guatemala, the, you know, all of the, you know, dirty wars that the U.S. was supporting there. So, but, you know, I, would, I wouldn't say, I mean, it's very kind of like low-level kind of involvement with some of those groups. Um, um, I had some friends who were Trotskyists, and they were always like trying to like get me to you know participate in their actions. And I was like, yeah, I don't think I'm. I mean, definitely a fellow traveler, but I just like don't want to get involved in a lot of sectarian Marxist politics. So you know, let's hang out and drink beer together. But it's like you know, well, yeah. Um, by the one of the places where I think my straight life and queer life kind of came together was in um, activism uh, against the war in Iraq. You know, that it's like different strands of my life were starting to like cross over in some of the anti-war protests. Because um, the queer nation was like a huge presence in the anti-war activism back then. Um, so that was, I would say, one of the places where my worlds collided, and it was like around that time that I, you know, was deciding to come out more publicly as trans. And some of that had to do like with the shifting cultural landscape, you know, that in the 80s, I didn't feel there was really any place for me to be where I was legible, except in this very, um, you know, underground, leather community um, and by the you know early 90s it's like with queer 
you know, hitting in a different way, um, you know, with queer theory in the academy and queer nation and, you know, the militancy of ACT UP and, you know, the anti-war protests that were going on. It just felt like things were kind of ripping apart in this very interesting way that like created more space, more cultural space. And I feel like I kind of, as that space was opening up, I was moving into it and finding a way to start, um, you know, bridging my subcultural politics with my more, you know, um, out in the open, mm -hmm. straight world politics. And a way of seeing, I mean, a way of seeing how, you know, I could be like queer in the streets and queer in the sheets and queer in the ivory tower too. You know, that it was, I thought that there was an intellectual project there, you know. Um, and so like the, you know, the more homo-oriented queer you know, theory of the day. It's like I definitely saw as like opening a door where it's like, oh, and there can be like this for trans too. Um, you know, I, I um, as soon as I came out publicly as trans, I started getting involved in um, LGBTQ activism at the Berkeley campus um, and helped. I was a part of this group that set up the like a queer studies minor, um, uh, the LGBTQ student services center and like doing um, activism and advocacy for queer uh, employees of the university. Um, and that was, I guess that was like 92 I was doing this. So, so my, my coming out, um, I'll talk more about the queer activism in the university later, but kind of when I, when I decided it's like, nope, publicly transitioned, like want to be like a whole integrated person, same me in all places at all times. Um, uh, I had just been, I had been, I, I had a part-time job working at uh, Stormy Leather, which is a, you know, fetish clothing store in um, south of Market. And it was a really slow day, and I was just like trying things on, you know. And I looked at myself in the mirror wearing like this, um, you know, black leather studded mini dress. And I saw myself in the mirror, and I thought, I look like a guy in a dress. It's just like, I just can't stand this anymore. I just like, I need to like physically transition. It's just like something just like snapped. And I went home and... Um, said to the person I was involved with at the time, I said, I know that you've said that, you know, it would be the end of our relationship and you would fight me for custody of our child. We was like, but I says, I, I just can't do it anymore. I just cannot do this anymore. It's like, I'm, I'm going to transition. And if you're going to leave me, you're going to leave me. And if you're going to fight me for custody, I will fight you. But it's like, I'm doing this. It's like, I'm doing it now. And, you know, there we went. And, you know, that relationship broke up. Turns out she didn't fight me for custody, which was a you know, huge relief. Um, but, you know, it's like I started very deliberately plotting my transition. You know, like I'd started on hormones and I was like coming out to, you know, more, more friends. Um, 
but I was being very cautious about the university because I thought, you know, I am not going to like have worked this hard to get here um, uh, to just sort of, you know, flame out around, you know, coming out, you know. Yeah, ask briefly, how did you access hormones at that time? Um, I, through my community contacts, found a therapist and, you know, had to go do the, you know, show them I'm trans enough for three months and get a prescription and find an endocrinologist and do all that. I mean, I didn't have any, um, I didn't go the street drugs route, you know, I went through, um, yeah, went through the medical establishment. We can talk more about that if you want, but... Um, so you were being calculated about how to handle that? Being very calculated about how to handle the transition. Because my my dissertation advisor was, you know, kind of an asshole, uh, more than kind of an asshole, he was like really abusive. Um, um, and I just did not trust him, you know, that he, I just thought he would fuck with me somehow. And so after, after having kind of stalled out for a while on finishing my dissertation, partly because I, I didn't want to finish because I didn't want to take next steps in life. It's like I was trying to like figure out my gender stuff and didn't really want to leave the Bay Area. Um, so after having made, you know, like written like two chapters in three years, it's like I finished the bulk of my dissertation in about six months. You know, and um, just squirted it out. It's you know, parts of it are not pretty. You know, I've never published it. Um, uh, but how did, the, how did you end up writing a dissertation on Mormonism? We can talk about that too. Um, but anyway, I, I, I finished yeah. my. Um, um, you know, I I finished the dissertation. I submitted it. You know, it was filed. You know, it's like you know, I hadn't walked yet, you know, in the graduation, but it's like I had completed all requirements for degree. And as soon as my dissertation was filed and accepted, the very next day I went and filed a petition to change the name on the title page, because it doesn't matter what name it is, right? So it's just, it's just a bureaucratic thing of like changing the name on the title page. And I, you know, took my title page around two two of my committee members were very supportive and I got their signatures first and then just kind of um, very quickly you know kind of rushed up to my advisor and said hey Charlie I need you to like sign this you know quickly I need a new title page I was like I was like what you know so but it was done so anyway so I got you know I just wanted to make sure that I had those three initials, because I, you know, the P, H, and D, because I thought I need all the cultural capital, intellectual capital I can muster, you know, um, as I head into this new new stage of life. Um, but you asked how I came to write on the Mormons. Um, some of it has autobiographical roots. My my mother's family. Um, was not the Utah version of Mormon. They were part of a smaller Mormon offshoot. But not uh, LDS. Well, they were RLDS. So, which you might know something about in Iowa. I don't know, because they were pretty centered in the Midwest. But um, the, the long backstory is that when Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, 
was assassinated in 1844, he didn't have a succession plan put in place. You know, um, nobody was expecting him to be murdered. Um, and so there was a sort of institutional crisis where, um, you know, the people who were in the Mormon movement um, were trying to figure out what they were going to do. And about two-thirds of the early Mormons, the majority, the clear majority, uh, accepted the leadership of Brigham Young, and he sort of led them from um, Illinois to Utah. It was in Nauvoo, Illinois in 1844 that Smith was murdered. Um, and so, like, you know, the thing that most people think of as the Mormons, you know, takes off from that point. But about a third of the original Mormon movement uh, rejected Brigham Young's leadership. And, you know, it was pretty complicated because it was, it's like part of the crisis in which Smith was murdered was when, like, a lot of the rank-and-file Mormons first learned that, you know, polygamy was going on among the higher-ups in the church hierarchy and... <clears throat> Um, some people thought that you know, Smith had taken the church in the wrong direction and so you know you had all of these you know sort of schisms going on and so there were a, there was like I said two-thirds of the church goes to Utah and a third of the church gets kind of broken up into like a you know a dozen different little small sectarian factions and then in the 1870s you know this is like 30 years later uh, there was a movement among those like scattered little, you know, Mormon offshoots um, uh, to come together um, in a new church organization. It was called the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and they're, it's weird because they're like the they're like the anti-Mormon Mormons. You know, like they're against those people who you know who you know commandeered the movement and went out to Utah. Uh, like they were anti-polygamy. Um, they, um, um, anyways, like I thought of them like the, the Quaker Mormons or the, the Trotskyist Mormons, you know, like they were the, the Mormons who were for the revolution but did not capture the state apparatus, you know, that they, they, you know, so anyway, so it's just like, it's, it's weird to grow up where you've got, you know, half of your family belongs to this movement that's like completely consumed with like these little internecine squabbles about like who are the real Mormons mm -hmm. and uh, and it was so it was something that I knew about when I was a kid was exposed to a lot of relatives who were involved in it but because we were in the military we weren't always around them you know and so like I had this experience all of my growing up here, so like stepping into and out of different sort of, you know, religious cosmologies and ontologies. And um, it's like, there can be more than one reality at a time, which then informed my sense of transness, you know, kind of like always thinking, well, you know, kind of like me, like feeling feminine identified, but like being seen as a man, like there's a difference between you know, my internal reality and this external reality and, you know, so it's just like those things, my, my sense of being trans and of like having this background of 
where it's like some people think, you know, a farm boy in upstate New York found these like magical gold plates that he translated with God's help, you know, and other people think that's crazy. Um, and so I have this deep internal sense of being, you know, feminine identified, but the world tells me I'm crazy. So, you know, so they just, they, they, they seemed, um, you know, analogous somehow to me. And I think kind of helped inculcate in me this sense of um, um, realities can be plural. Mm -hmm. um, and so then when I was, when I was in grad school, um, I really thought what I was going to write my dissertation on was, you know, what I thought of as um, um, I don't want to use the word indigenous, but like sort of, um, I wanted to sort of look at homegrown radical movements in North America. Um, and my, my sense there was, you know, not necessarily Marxist ideas of revolution, where it's like, you know, you're sort of waiting for the revolutionary moment or the conditions are not right yet for, you know, whatever. Um, but this more of a sense of like, how can we like we radically change the way we live n now? Kind of like what you might call like a prefigurative politics, you know, uh, you know, sort of a DIY revolutionaries who are not waiting for the future to come, but are like living now the way that they want to live. And I was sort of casting around for a topic that could let me ask those questions, and yeah, I had some family-based knowledge of, a, of one of the Mormon offshoots in Texas um, that was like radically communitarian. They called themselves Bible communists and um, um, you know they were I just thought you know I could like draw on this like sectarian Mormon history to like maybe like take this like they definitely had this sense of like we're living now the way that we think we should live like they were overthrowing the you know bourgeois marriage to institute a biblically sanctioned you know polygamy but you know like in the days of the saints they had all things common and you know so you have to abolish private property and like it was this weird sort of you know mix of things but it's like oh you know like they're kind of doing that thing that i'm interested in and like you know do it now do it yourself mentality for socio-political transformation. Um, and so I wrote a, a seminar paper, you know, on the, the, the white-height faction of um, um, the Mormons in Zodiac, Texas. Um, and the guy that I wrote it for, it was a big, um, you know, antebellum U.S. historian, thought it was great and uh, it's like you know you could make this your dissertation topic and I thought oh you know I could you know it's like I was thinking of it more from like a left perspective but you know it would be kind of fascinating to like look at a you know what we might now call like a populist ethno-nationalist theocratic movement um, that is like trying to actualize its like sense of the proper way to live it's like huh, yeah, that would be a little out of the box for me. It's like, and yeah, I've got this angle on it from my family history. It's like, yeah, 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 I think I'm gonna do that. Um, as the project developed, um, 
the way that I kind of frame it now is to, to say that like it became a dissertation that was much more about the emergence of historically novel identity formations. You know, it's like 1825, there's no such thing as a Mormon. It just doesn't exist. The word is not even there. Um, uh, 1845, it's like, well, there are people who say that they are one. You know, they make these identity statements about being one. There is a social movement. There is a body of literature. There is a cosmology. There are innovations in the kinship system. There's a transcontinental migration. It's just like over the course of 20 years, boom, this whole new socio-political, cultural formation emerges, you know, that has, you know, significance for the whole like, process of settlement of North America, you know, it's, it's a, became a huge part of the settler colonial history of North America. Um, how did that happen? You know, how is it that, how is it that the emergence of historically novel forms of identity becomes something that is so culturally productive, mm. you know? It's an interesting through way. Right. So, <laughs> So that was my ob oblique entry into doing trans history. It's like I never, I mean, it's like because I was coming out as trans, it's like there was no way in hell I was <laughs> going to get a job teaching early 19th century U.S. religious history. Um, and I thought, but I have this sort of theoretical apparatus for yeah. thinking about the cultural and political work that identity formation does. And um, yeah, I'm just going to like look at sexuality and gender identities. There was a time when the word transsexual did not yet exist, you know? Where did that come from? And what did it do? And how did it happen? So um, I feel like I, I developed my model for thinking about um, identity by working on the Mormons. You know, it was, my dissertation was called Making Mormonism, colon, a case study in the formation of marginal cultural identity. And so, you know, I just took the Mormons out and put trans in that model and turned the crank, and that's been my career. Uh, so what happened after you defended the dissertation? Well, it was Berkeley, so we didn't have to defend the dissertation. We just had to get the title page signed by the director. Okay. So um, um, I, I did what I then called my seven years unpaid residency in transgender studies. I was poor as fuck for a long time. Just, I mean, I, I could not find work. Um, um, you know, I think I was making, mm, it's like 8,000, 10,000 a year, you know. Did you attempt to get academic jobs or just? I applied for academic jobs every year between 1992 and 2008. It was my annual exercise in futility. That sounds horrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like, who am I going to be for the market this year? And, you know, I just, no, I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't get arrested, you know, in, in academia. Um, but, you know, I just, I just decided, um, all right, well, I'm probably not going to have an academic career. Um, 
if I do have an academic career, it will be sometime in the future, and it will be because I'm doing the work now to like help build a field. I would joke about it and say like I can't get a job until I you know build the field that I can get hired into. Which I have. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I mean yes, but you know not by myself, right? It's like I don't ever want to say like I built a field, but it's like I've been doing field development work for 25 years or more at this point. Um, and you know, I thought, well, I have to live in the meantime. You know, I need to do things that I'm interested in. Um, need to find a way to keep a roof over my head and my kid's head and, you know, gotta eat. And, you know, gotta like, save my pennies for surgery and, you know, all that. Um, and, but you know, like in a, in a sense, those years between 1992 when I graduated and 2000, well, 98, between 92 and 98, um, you know, it's like the best of times, the worst of times, you know, it's like poor as fuck, uh, but feeling like really alive and like really energized and, um, um, you know, it just felt like there was so much world building going on. San Francisco was a great place to be in the early 90s. Um, you know, it just, the, the whole trans scene just blew up. It was a new thing under the sun. Um, you know, that, that um, it was just really infused by, you know, sort of this queer sensibility. It was very political. It felt very experimental. Um, it wasn't like, you know, it was like against the whole pathologization model. Um, you know, like you were seeing things like the, you know, the Tom Waddell clinic would have his, you know, it was called Training Tuesdays clinic um, that, you know, you had like all of these like queer and trans medical providers who were doing more um, sort of like a harm reduction model. It's like, hey, we're out here to gatekeep. It's like, if, you know, you taking these drugs, it's like gonna like make your life, you know, better and it's like, great, we're all, we're, we're for you. You know, there were some of the old divisions between gay and lesbian and trans had like broken down through this new queer sensibility. Um, you know, there was the, um, you know, I mean the AIDS crisis I think really helped break down some of the identitarian barriers because there were people involved in you know, AIDS politics and AIDS service provision and um, a lot of cross fertilization and the you know the different you know mobilizations against the war that was going on back then so it just felt very um, felt very open really free you know uh, in a way that I haven't experienced since you know that it just felt like because I had a lot of world making going on. Um, um, you know, I was picking up a little bit of adjunct teaching now and then. Um, I taught a few semesters at um, University of San Francisco. Um, I was volunteering at, you know, what's now called the GLBT Historical Society. I was sort of learning how to be an archivist. I got some contract work doing uh, an AIDS history project. Um, 
you know, where I was going out and collecting the papers of people who had been involved in the first wave of AIDS activism in California and depositing them in the archive. Um, you know, I was doing spoken word performance and figuring out I could, you know, be an artistic and creative person besides a wonky historian. I was, you know, still involved in the leather community. Um, I was living with a group of people in Oakland who all, you know, a lot of them came out of like, you know, anarchist backgrounds and, you know, it's just, I just felt like I was like totally in the mix. Um, and was trying to articulate this new transgender sensibility. Um, you know, personal influences for me and how I was thinking about what trans could be. Um, you know, I mean, Kate Bornstein was around at the time and she had her play Hidden Agender, um, you know, which was, you know, it was a very fresh, you know, take on being, being trans. Um, you know, she was very out about being a trans lesbian, it wasn't stealth. Um, Justin, Vivian Bond had their first, you know, stage role in that play. I remember seeing, you know, Justin back in the day in that. Um, um, Sandy Stone had written Post-Transsexual Manifesto, which I had, you know, stumbled across and it must have been about 90 to, you know, and I had phoned her up and, you know, gotten to know her and was, you know, very inspired by what, how she was thinking about post-transsexuality. Um, you know, I remember coming across Leslie Feinberg's um, Transgender Liberation, a movement whose time has come um, at Modern Times Bookstore in the Mission, which was the, you know, the sort of leftist bookstore in San Francisco. Was that, was that how like those kinds of materials were circulating? It was like through bookstores and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, um, and um, you know, I I was involved in Transgender Nation, which was an offshoot of Queer Nation. I mean, it started as a focus group within Queer Nation, and then outlived Queer Nation and became its own thing. So, anyway, I mean, there was just a shit ton of stuff going on. Um, there was um, this great party uh, called Club Confidential. It was run by Jordy Jones and Stafford. Um, it was like a quarterly, you know, trans cabaret. Um, there was. Um, I'm sorry, what was it called? Club Confidential. Where was it? Uh, it was at this. Mm, old motor inn and tourist court kind of place in some Polk Street. I try to remember the name of the place, but it was the ground floor like club and restaurant of this kind of sleazy hotel. Um, um, but it was you know it was this great like small performance venue that was so fun. Um, um, it was Red Dora's Bearded Lady Coffee House and Truck Stop Cafe, you know, those were all the people from Tribate used to hang out and, you know, there was, they would hold, have, um, I mean, who else was like, you know, uh, Harry Dodge was there and Silas Howard and, you know, like that, Lynn Breedlove, you know, it's like, that was, it was like, it was where, 
you know, this sort of like punk dyke scene was grounded. And it's like, but it was just like the, you know, you know like the, the best coffee house in San Francisco. Um, you know, I would hang out there a lot. Would, um, I remember, you know, doing spoken word, like reading and performance there, like curating little art shows there. Um, you know, it was, I, I, I have very fond memories of San Francisco in the, the early 90s. You know, and, you know, I was, like I said, involved, um, you know, post-transition and post-PhD with, um, you know, the emerging queer scene at, at Berkeley. Um, at the time, um, Carolyn Dinshaw, who was now at NYU, was on the English faculty at Berkeley, and she and David Halperin were founding um, GLQ, which was like the first, you know, queer theory journal. And Carolyn was the person who coordinated the Berkeley Bisexual Lesbian Gay Alliance thing, which I, the, I had plugged into as a place to start doing campus-based activism, you know, where we got the queer theory minor going and the student services thing and faculty advocacy work. So, you know, I, I feel like I got to see the early institutionalization of queer theory in the academy, you know, by being plugged in there and thinking all along, you know, it's like, oh, you know, like either trans has a place in queer theory because queer is anti-heteronormative in a way that's bigger than homo, or, you know, it needs to be its own thing, right? So both and. Um, so, you know, again, I felt like I kind of had a ringside seat to the beginnings of queer theories institutionalization and have definitely taken a page out of that playbook as I've worked to help develop trans studies as a more institutionalized presence within the academy. And I, I will just say parenthetically that, you know, there's a lot of ambivalence about institutionalizing a field of study. I mean, I know it's a really fraught thing to do, but, you know, for me, like, there's something trans about always insisting on the both and <laughs> rather than the either or and I think it's both important to access the resources that higher education can bring to trans studies as a way of developing a more politicized depathologizing framework for understanding trans lives and to recognize that you know the academy is not the be-all and end-all and that you know trying to institutionalize things in one way does not say anything negative about the value of all the work that happens in extra institutional you know extra academic institutional spaces or you know street politics or uh, or you know cultural production outside the academy it's like i just i just see always saw um, the process of institutionalization is like bringing more, like adding another element, you know, it's just like another brick in the wall, um, rather than like the thing that was better. Uh, were there particular ways that you sort of observed that with like the early institutionalization of queer theory that made you sort of uh, convinced of, the, of like the value of, of that approach? Um, I don't know of any one particular thing other than um, 
well, in the late 80s and early 90s, it still seemed like rather impossible to be like an out-politicized gay or lesbian person who was like drawing on, you know, embodied knowledge and life experience as part of your like critique of dominant forms of knowledge and to have that taken seriously. Um, um, you know, so it's like I definitely drew inspiration from that, from like seeing... Um, you know, that you could form a field of study around those kinds of marginalized knowledges. You know, and, you know, it being the Bay Area, it's like I was, you know, well aware of, you know, Gloria Anzaldúa and Sheree Moraga and the whole, you know, Chicana feminisms, this bridge called my back moment. Um, you know, getting, you know, had this sense of queer of color feminisms as another kind of, you know, theory in the flesh. Um, and just thinking it's like, oh, you know, with this interest that I have and the historicity of identity formation and the kind of cultural work that it can do, seeing that trans could be, you know, articulated in a way that it became, a, um, you know, a, an analytical lens or rubric or framework for understanding, you know, the politics of knowledge production um, and that um, you know definitely feel like my sense of trans politics built on queer of color feminism you know AIDS activism politically left movements um, you know and the early institutionalization of queer theory you know so um, yeah, I don't know what more to say, but like all of that was sort of in the in the atmosphere for me. Um, you know, I I started. Um, yeah, I I felt very free in um, not having tenure to worry about. And it wasn't like, oh, you know, I'm an academic. I'm like trying to, you know, write my book. I'm trying to get tenure. I've got to keep my head down. You know, I need to be cautious. It's just like I was, I had fallen off the edge of the universe. You know, just like I was not on the map. It's like it didn't matter what I did. And I just thought, well, you know, I'm just going to do whatever the hell I'm interested in. And so, you know, like I said, I was more involved in arts and activism and, um, you know, did my research, historical research work without, you know, a view towards um, uh, having it be a tenurable project. And, um, you know, I felt very free to do more experimental kinds of writing. Mm -hmm. um, um, and, you know, that's where my words to Victor Frankenstein came from. I wrote that in like, mm, like 93 or 4. 93, published in 94. Um, um, you know, there's some spoken word stuff that I was doing back then that I still think holds up pretty well. There was a piece called um, uh, The Surgeon Haunts My Dreams that I did as a, you know, performance piece. You know, I started meeting people in more of the arts worlds. Like, I collaborated with Shu Li Chang on this the, the first piece commissioned by the Guggenheim for their digital, you know, online library, this thing called library, you know, gallery. Um, 
this uh, piece called Brandon, um, which is based on the Brandon Tina murder, but it's like it became sort of exploration of like where is the body in cyberspace and what you know what does you know what constitutes violence you know in this non corporealized space and anyway it was a r really interesting early bit of feminist cyber art mm -hmm. um, feminist and trans cyber art you know so it was you know fun to work in that you know I just increasingly got the sense that um, I can work in a lot of different fields I can just follow my interests I can like find little ways of getting paid like I said I was poor as fuck but um, I, I was intellectually and politically like really engaged and alive and in, you know without necessarily knowing that the work that I was doing then would have some kind of longevity or lay a foundation for me to ultimately have a different kind of job it's just like I was just doing things that I cared about and that mattered to me and um, in retrospect you know yeah I they they were things that kind of laid a foundation for things that I could push off on you know and yeah like it's kind of what gave me the confidence to become a filmmaker um, it led to like the his, the work I was doing with the GLBT historical society at some point you know like I became the executive director of the organization and learned that I you know actually had some management and fundraising skills um, you know the you know, I would write coffee table books on Bay Area queer history, but, you know, like, it really, like, taught me how to do publishing. Um, you know, I would do special issues of journals. It's like, oh, like, I know how to edit. And, you know, basically just, like, trying to cobble together a living by doing things that I felt like I could take on to do. It's like it gave me a pretty broad portfolio of professional skills um, that after, you know, six or seven years did actually then turn into career in a, in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that um, I would say, a, a turning point for me in terms of my profession was, was getting the uh, Ford Foundation Social Science Research Council postdoctoral fellowship in sexuality studies. Um, and I give total props to my friend Joanne Meyerowitz for um, encouraging me to do that. You know, it was um, a new program in 1997, and Joanne got one of the first cohort of you know, that, that grant. You know, I knew her, you know, because we were both working on trans historical topics at the time. She was working on her book, How Sex Changed. And, you know, she gets this fellowship. She says, you need to apply for this next year. I'm going like, you know what? She's like, I apply for things all the time. I don't get it. That's a bitch of an application. It's just going to take too much time. She's like, no, you need to apply for this. And she was, you know, actually advocating really strongly for me within the SSRC program to fund the work that I was doing and you know and I applied and I got it so I had a postdoc for two years at Stanford 98 to 2000 um, and having that um, having that funding for two years um, I mean I mean I look back on it 
now it's like I think it was like forty five thousand dollars a year uh, for this postdoc, but it's like I've been living on a quarter of that, and it's just like I felt rich. Um, you know, it gave me this institutional access at Stanford. It let me do the research that became the film Screaming Queens. Uh, it let me start moonlighting as the executive director of the Historical Society. Like they couldn't afford to pay an executive director and they needed one to, you know, just kind of, well, they were gonna go under because they didn't have anybody who was doing the fundraising and kind of building infrastructure for them. Uh, it let me take on that job in an unpaid capacity for two years so that I could then like build up enough fundraising and grants that we could afford to hire an executive director when my funding ran out from the SSRC. So I mean, it was just, it was, and it was the thing that, um, that kind of like gave me a different kind of, you know, seal of approval from the powers that be. You know, so it was like taking everything that I kind of learned subculturally and on the streets and in movements and um, be able to translate that into some kind of, um, yeah, some kind of cultural capital. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I, by the later 90s, said I was doing this research that became Screaming Queens. Um, I was running a nonprofit organization and getting sort of plugged into the you know, city funding machinery differently. Um, and I was able to take, um, take the time to do more um, sort of institution building, you know, field formation work. Stephen Whittle and I did the Trans Studies Reader Volume 1. Um, that came out in 2005. Um, so you know, you know, so so by by two, uh, where do I want to go with this? Um, it's hard because it's like my career paths and interests are very diverse and tangled. There's a lot of things going on at once. A lot of things going on at once. Um, um, Well, so yeah, I mean, maybe that's a place to stop for a minute and we could take a break. Um, kind of feeling talked out, but by around, I would say that, that next chunk of life, so like 98 when I get the funding from SSRC up through like 2005 or six, you know, that was, you know, me being a nonprofit executive, you know, budding filmmaker and, um, you know, trying to take next steps in field formation. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the, those those seven years, you know, definitely, you know, you know, built on what I had done before, and were setting the stage for what was going to come mm -hmm. after. Because like in two thousand seven or eight, like that's when I started moving back into the academy. Mm -hmm. um, partly because it's like by this time I had. A documentary film under my belt and we had done the trans studies reader and it just sort of seemed like oh like trans history is or you know trans studies is a thing oh that's the other thing like it was in 2007 that seal press asked me to write um 
transgender history, you know, which then becomes like a, you know, kind of like a classroom mm. staple. Um, but anyway, so like based on the work that I was doing 98 to 2007, you know, that's the thing that then laid the foundation for me to go into the academy mm. as a professor starting in 2007. Yeah, I'll, take, I'll take a break. Yeah, that's a lot of a lot of blather. Uh, hi, this is AJ. I'm just uh, weighing back in to say that we are going to uh, continue this um, interview with another session at a later date, at which point I'll have a lot of follow-up questions and we will um, move further into the present. Uh, Susan, do you have anything you want to add for now? Nope. I'm fine. All right. Do, uh, Talk to you later. We'll be back later. Bye-bye.